So like I said, there is no more confusing book than the book of Zechariah, just hands down. The structure isn't so tough. The structure is pretty clear. There's kind of three things that happen. On one night, during the time when the Jews are going back from the exile to Jerusalem, under the command of Cyrus to rebuild the temple, after this temple has been begun, and after Haggai has prophesied to the people to continue this work, even though Cyrus is no longer emperor, and Darius Hystaphases, I think that's how you pronounce it, has become the emperor. In one night, Zechariah has a series of night visions. That is, he has a bunch of visions all at once in one night. And not only are they over the top and extreme, but they're the easiest thing in the book to understand. They all happen in one night, and then it kind of stops for a while. That section of Zechariah, we're going to look at at the late service, vision by vision, and put them together and really come to some understanding there. So if you're curious about that, do look up how to read the Bible, Zechariah part two, Jonathan Fisk on YouTube later this week, you'll be able to find it there. Next, what happens is there is a question brought to some of the priests by some of the people who have resettled the land. This is chapters seven and eight. And this question is whether or not they should continue fasting on certain days of the year. Because ever since the exile, four major moments leading up to that exile, including the destruction of the temple and the conquering of the city by Babylon, have been days that while in exile, they would fast as a sign of repentance. They ask, should we keep doing this now that the temple is almost finished or now that it's at least been begun? And they get a a fairly long answer. In short, the answer is, I don't care. What I want you to do is believe what I say, and not so sure you've been doing that. Uh, That's the long and short of it. The result is, do they continue this fasting? That's up to debate, actually. It would seem the answer that they're given, that God is with them, that they're going to have the temple built, whether they listen or not, that this would mean some of them, at least, did stop the fast. But to this day, and following the destruction of Jerusalem again in 70 AD, after our Lord's resurrection, Many Jews have continued that practice of fasting on these various days. So that brings us all the way up to chapter 8, a series of night visions and a question about fasting with God's answer. Chapters 9 through 14 is where it actually gets confusing. It gets so confusing that no one really knows what's going on in it, and people try to do all manner of things with it. And like with the book of Daniel, And like with the book of Revelation, part of the problem is wanting to believe it's a roadmap for the end of the world. Part of the problem is wanting to say all of these signs are about some future event that still hasn't happened, and we have to look and see how that happens. Now, with Daniel especially, it's easy to see that the prophecies that it's talking about all did happen after Daniel's life and before Jesus came. What makes Zechariah difficult is that whenever these things were fulfilled, outside of the parts that are clearly about Jesus himself, we don't really know. We don't have historical records that we can tie to what he says will happen. But that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. So what I'm going to try to convince you of today is that all of these things were either pieces of the Greek and Roman suppression of the Jews after the time of the rebuilding of the temple, 
leading up to Christ and or fulfillments by Christ himself. And in fact, our text from chapter 9, which we will look at piece by piece, is very clearly fulfilled by Jesus, if nowhere else. All right, so I'm going to ask you to look at some of these texts today, and in part, the main goal is going to be exposure. I'm going to try to go slow, but also read quite a bit, so you just see what's there. And I want us to start with Zechariah chapter 1. This is on page 793 of those pew Bibles in front of you. And if you don't have a pew Bible and you got to go find Zechariah and you need a moment, I can tell you that it is in the so-called minor prophets. These are the last section of the Old Testament. They're called minor, not because they're the minor leagues versus the major leagues, but just because they're small. Back in the day before paper that we could bind together in books, they used scrolls. And at a certain point, the scroll would get so long that it would take forever to get from one side to the other. And so they limited how long those scrolls were. And these 12 prophets all fit on one scroll. And so the real name of that scroll was the Book of the Twelve. Whereas, say, Isaiah needed his own scroll, right? And Ezekiel needed his own scroll. The Book of the Twelve all fit on one. That Book of the Twelve, these minor prophets, are by and large in order chronologically, which if you're reading through the Bible, that's kind of helpful to know. Start to finish, they're mostly in order as they happen. The trick is they're in order as sections. So there's a section from the exile. There's a section from, excuse me, there's a section from before the exile. There's a section from the exile. And then there's a section from after the exile. That's in order. But then when you get into those sections, not so much in order. And I won't bore you with, you know, why that is, but there's thematic reasons for that, dealing with the northern and southern kingdoms and a bunch of other things. Well, hopefully by now you've found the book of the 12 and you've made your way into Zechariah. It is the second to last book right before the book of Malachi, because again, in order here, we're at the very end of the Old Testament. After Zechariah and Malachi, there will be no more prophecy for 500 years up until the coming of John the Baptist, who says, I'm here to proclaim something new. And of course, he baptizes the one greater who comes after him. And again, what this means, I think, I believe, is that Zechariah is giving the people the words they are to cling to while they wait for their Messiah to come, and then how it will be when he comes. So we shouldn't see this book as being about anything more than pushing us forward through that 500 years to the time of Jesus Christ himself. Now, why do I want to start at chapter 1? I just want to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 6, because this is very clear. And this does have application at all times and in all places to all Christians who hope in the Lord Jesus. Uh, the opening part about when is not as clear. That's verse 1. Verse 1 says, In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, he's the second great king of Persia, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying, all right, here's what he says. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear 
or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, this is the people of Zechariah's day, as the Lord of hosts has purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so he has dealt with us. Now to summarize this, I want to give you two things. One, he's effectively saying, didn't the prophets say you would be exiled because you didn't believe? And didn't they say that after the exile, you'd be brought back? And they're like, yep, that's what happened. Now, where are those who were before us? What happened to them? They're all dead. They're all gone. Where are the stories of all the great things they'll do? They're all missing. We don't remember. And you can apply this to your life right now. You can look back at history. You can look back at your life since the 1980s. You can look back at the last two years and you can say, where has all of it gone? And you can know that none of it endures. Not the way that the words of Jesus Christ do. And so the second thing to do is jump all the way up to Matthew 28, where we remember that our Lord, after arising from the dead, said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go into all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And I am with you always. How? In those teachings, in this word, even to the very end of the age. And maybe you'll remember last week from Matthew chapter 24, how he says that heaven and earth will pass away. But my word, Jesus' word, will never pass away. That is the primary message of Zechariah all the way through. That the words of God are stronger than the words of men. And that the primary message is, your fathers have sinned. So, repent. Believe in the gospel. Believe that I am for you, not against you. Believe that when you come to me and confess your sins, I am faithful and just to forgive your sins and purify you from all unrighteousness. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. All right. From there, go ahead and flip those pages over to chapter 9. Again, we're going to do a bunch of reading today uh, just to kind of expose you to this. And I'm going to do my best to open it as we go, keeping an eye on the time as we go. What gets really tough right away is chapter 9, verse 1. It, it opens with this oracle of the word of the Lord against the land of Hadrach. There's a lot of debate amongst the prophets about where this is. It maybe was a small city outside of Syria, but it doesn't compare to all the other things that come after us. If you let your finger kind of scroll down, you can see and Damascus and Hamath and Tyre and Sidon. Those are names that are much more familiar to history. So who is this Hadrach and what is this burden, this oracle of God against them? To summarize it long and short, it's all the ancient enemies of Israel. It's all those around Israel that eventually are going to be overcome and destroyed by the kingdom of Greece. Do you remember last week how we talked about these four beasts in the book of Daniel that represented, or the, the statue also, there's a statue with four parts, and they represent four kingdoms that will come from the time of Daniel to the time of Christ. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome. And we talked about also how at the back of the book, rather than expanding and going past Rome, instead it gets smaller and it, it 
forgets Rome and it forgets Babylon and talks about Persia and Greece. And then it forgets Persia and it talks about just Greece and what it will do to the kingdom of Judah and how that abomination of desolation will be set up and how this guy Antiochus Epiphanes IV, maybe you remember. Yeah, how it just gets narrower and narrower about Greece. Why? Because they're the major power that's going to rule for those next 500 years. And they do this again by first conquering all of the ancient enemies of Israel. And that's what this prophecy is saying, that those who used to be those who oppressed you will no longer be those who oppressed you. And what's amazing about this, as we read through it, hopefully it'll it'll kind of percolate up. What's amazing about this is God's not only going to destroy these cities, but he's going to save the people in these cities so that they become part of the Jewish hope. And so that many of them will look forward to the Messiah and be saved when Christ comes. And of course, we know from the Gospels this happened quite often, that Christ was among these Gentile areas, and many of them did believe. All right, so here we're just going to go ahead and read it. I'm not going to try to explain all of it, but that one thing, look for how he's saving them as he destroys them. All right, 9 verse 1, all the way through here. The oracle of the word of the Lord is against the land of Hadrach. And Damascus is its resting place. For the Lord has an eye on mankind and on all the tribes of Israel. And on Hamath also, which borders it, Tyre and Sidon, though they are very wise. Tyre has built herself a rampart and heaped up silver like dust and fine gold like the mud of the streets. But behold... The Lord will strip her of her possessions and strike down her power on the sea, and she, she shall be devoured by fire. Um, just an insert here. Alexander the Great did conquer Tyre. It took him longer than it took him to conquer many places. The wall of Tyre was 150 feet high. Modern people can't even really imagine a wall around a city 150 feet high. But back before you could shoot big projectiles at things and knock walls down, It was the way to defend yourself, the hands down, right? So Alexander the Great did destroy them. Verse 5, Ashkelon shall see it and be afraid, Gaza too, and shall writhe in anguish, Ekron also, because its hopes are confounded. Those are all ancient enemies of Israel. The king shall perish from Gaza, Ashkelon shall be uninhabited. A mixed people shall dwell in Ashdod. And I will cut off the pride of Philistia. Now, does the name Samaritan ring a bell? You know how the Samaritans are a mixed people. There are people that are partially Jewish and partially Canaanite, yeah, partially Philistine. That's what this is getting at here. Verse 7. I will take away its blood from its mouth and its abominations from between its teeth. It too shall be a remnant for our God. It shall be like a clan in Judah and Ekron shall be like the Jebusites. All right, so their false worship is going to be taken away, and they will be brought into a place where they will be ready to receive the Christ, as I said a moment ago. What does it mean that they will be like the Jebusite? This is actually pretty cool. The Jebusites were those who founded and ruled Jerusalem before Israel entered the land, and Israel never conquered Jerusalem until King David conquered Jerusalem and made it its own. He did kill most of the Jebusites there. However, some of them repented and said, we want to become those who fear God and worship God. 
And there's a very famous Jebusite whose name I, I can't remember, but he is the most famous one who ended up selling his threshing floor to David as the site on which the temple will be built. And so that Ekron will be like the Jebusites here is to say that these nations which surround you, which are your enemies, will again become those who are hoping in the same hope you are that is in the Christ. Verse 8, then I will encamp at my house as a guard so that none shall march to and fro. No oppressor shall again march over them for now I see with my own eyes. This is that God's presence will then enter the city enter the land, and be there once and for all. Now, here is where I want you to start seeing the fulfillment in Jesus Christ. That when Christ himself enters Jerusalem on that donkey, he, as God and man, is looking upon the land with his own eyes. It is authentically and actually true. The next verse gets right to that. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, Your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. Our Lord very clearly intended to fulfill this prophecy, sending his disciples to get those two beasts of burden for him and riding them into the city. Whether or not anybody else understood what he was doing, we can see now he believed this prophecy was ultimately about him. And his bringing of peace. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. That's the Gentiles, that's you. And his rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. That language from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth is not about amber waves of grain and God bless America. It's about what Moses said the fulfillment of his prophecies that they would enter the land would achieve. When they finally possessed the land, it would be from sea to sea and from the river, that's the Euphrates, to the very ends of the earth. That is what Christ does achieve. Not so much by the sword again, but as the peace which he proclaimed to mankind when taking the burden of our sin upon himself into the grave, he broke the gates of hell and opened up eternal life to all of us. That's what it's going to say next. Verse 11, as for you also, that is the people he's speaking to, but here it is being about you. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, this is the blood of Jesus cross. Because of that, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. What's the waterless pit? It's a way of talking about the grave, Sheol, the place of dust and shadow, the place from which no man returns. But in his resurrection, he has brought with him all mankind to set us free from that waterless pit. And so we are enjoined in verse 12 here, return to your stronghold for them that meant go back to Jerusalem. For us today, it means remember Jesus is your savior. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. That Advent word, hope. Right? What is our hope? That the resurrection is achieved and that for us it is coming, that we are set free from the waterless pit of the grave. Return, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double. Do you remember when Jesus says to his apostles that none of you who have left house or home, wife or family for the sake of the king and kingdom will not have it restored to you even up to 100 fold? 
the idea again of restoring double is less literal than that there is nothing worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us when he returns. Whatever sufferings of this present age we endure, they are but a small drop in the bucket compared to the blessings of innocence and righteousness and blessedness that will be ours for all time on that great day of resurrection. Verse 13 says this, For I have bent Judah as my bow, I have made Ephraim its arrow, I will stir up your sons, O Zion, against your sons, O Greece. Remember, Greece is going to be their oppressor during most of the time, intertestamentally, and wield you like a warrior's sword. So this is for those people that are there right then, for them to know that no matter what oppression comes, God is not going to let his message, his word, and therefore his people who believe it be entirely wiped away. But they will stay planted in that land until the king comes to fulfill everything that has been spoken to them. All right. Now, in order to make sure we get a couple more of these key verses that are about Christ, we're going to skip over chapter 10 and 11, where there's a whole bit about the false shepherds. This would be false teachers who are misleading the people. And you might remember the story about how the way Antiochus Epiphanes took over the kingdom was by uh, allowing various men to buy the high priesthood, men who didn't deserve to be the high priest, but they bought their way into it. This is a condemnation of them, and it sets up a anger against the shepherd that God is going to pour out on the final shepherd. And that is where we want to go ahead and look at chapter 12. <clears throat> yes. Let's read chapter 12 here, beginning at verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Right Before it was about the nations, now it's about his people. Thus declares the Lord who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. Behold, I am about to make Jerusalem a cup of staggering to all the surrounding peoples. The siege of Jerusalem will also be against Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will surely hurt themselves, and all the nations of the earth will gather against it. On that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness. But for the sake of the house of Judah, I will keep my eyes open when I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. Then the clans of Judah shall say to themselves, the inhabitants of Jerusalem have strength through the Lord of hosts, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a blazing pot in the midst of wood, like a flaming torch among the sheaves, and they shall devour to the right and to the left all the surrounding peoples, while Jerusalem shall again be inhabited in its place in Jerusalem. Now again, without going verse by verse here, what happens very clearly is that anybody who tries to conquer Jerusalem has trouble. Every nation that wants to rule them has trouble. You remember Pontius Pilate? He was the governor. He ends up in exile because it went so poorly for him. Nobody wanted to be made governor of Jerusalem. It was all but an exile sentence ahead of the time. So this is all so that the city will be prepared to crucify Christ when he comes. Verse 7. And the Lord will give salvation to the tents of Judah first, that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem may not surpass that of Judah. 
On that day, the Lord will protect the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the feeblest among them on that day shall be like David and the house of David shall be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. And on that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Please understand that day is the day of the cross, the day on which the house of David was indeed God in the flesh, taking all of the sins of the world into Judah, into Jerusalem, into himself, to bury it in himself and come out alive on the other side. So that verse 10, think of Pentecost here a little bit. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, whom they have pierced, don't miss that, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps for a firstborn. Do you remember how the gospel says that those who see Christ crucified walk by wagging their heads and saying, what a shame, what a shame, looking on him whom they have pierced. And the New Testament definitely picks up on that language of piercing. Verse 11, on that day, the morning in Jerusalem will be great as the morning for Hadad Rinnum in the plain of Megiddo. That was a great failure war. Of the, Jerusalem, of the Judites in the Old Testament. They didn't do well on the plains of Megiddo. So on the day when Christ died, it's a day of mourning and deep darkness. And then verses 12 and following extends this, this gift of mourning and the awareness of Christ's death to all sorts of people, including those who don't deserve it. But we're going to skip ahead from there to chapter 13 now, where it's going to come back to this idea of, of the shepherd being struck. Chapter 13, verse 1. Same day, on that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. Here, I really want you to think of how Jesus, giving up his spirit, dies on the cross, and then they pierce his heart with a spear and outflow blood and water, certainly typifying baptism and the Lord's Supper, but nonetheless, unequivocally, a fountain from the house of David, spilling the life of God onto the earth itself. Verse two, on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. And I will remove from the land the prophets and the spirit of uncleanness. So yes, indeed, in Jesus Christ, all idols are conquered. But notice what also is said here that many American Christians will not like, that the spirit of prophecy is no more, that the prophecies are all from of old to point to Jesus and to no one else. The word that is given now is once for all, as the author of Hebrews says, in many and various ways. God spoke to us of old by the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Now, just in case you want to quibble and say, but there's got to be prophecy allowed, Pastor. I have a friend who had a dream about a piano that was going to fall on them, and they didn't go out, and it didn't happen, but the piano fell. Fine. I don't even know what that means. But what I know is what chapter 13, verses 3 and following say about how we should kill anyone who says they're a prophet. Now, I don't think we're supposed to actually do that, but, but look how serious this language is. Verse 3, and if anyone prophesies again, His father and mother who bore him 
will say to him, you shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother who bore him shall pierce him through when he prophesies. Verse 4, on that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his vision when he prophesies. He will not put on a hairy cloak in order to deceive, but he will say, I am no prophet. I am a worker of the soil, for a man sold me in my youth. And if one asks him, what are these wounds on your back? He will say, the wounds I received in the house of my friends. Now, if, if I can put that together quickly, what it means is prophecy will pass away, and in the place of prophets will be teachers, or as Ephesians 4 says, pastors and teachers. That's primarily what we're supposed to be now. I don't get new visions. I don't get to imagine what will come and say, thus saith the Lord. I am to repeat what has been said already. And indeed, the wounds on my back in the house of my friends will be those who claim to be Christians, but do not receive those words. And so abuse and even for some martyr those teachers that have come and been sent to them. All right, just a few more verses here to close. We're going to look at verses 7 through 9, where this prophecy against the shepherd comes to the bear, right? Awake, O sword, against my shepherd. That's Jesus, yeah? the good shepherd. Against the man who stands next to me. That's Jesus, the angel of the Lord, the son of man. It's saying, awake against him. Here comes the wrath, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will turn my hand against the little ones. You remember how in the Gospels, in the Garden of Gethsemane, when they arrest Jesus and everybody flees, they quote this verse, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Verse eight, in the whole land declares the Lord, two thirds shall be cut off and perish and one third shall be left alive. That's a way of saying that at the time that all this happens, when Jesus rises from the dead, there will be a small majority of Jews who believe and a large majority of Jews who do not believe and reject the covenant, which of course the book of Acts details very clearly. Verse nine, I will put this third into the fire. That is the saved, those who are saved. I will put them into the fire and refine them as one refined silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, Jesus Christ, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God, or Jesus Christ is Lord. We're going to stop there this morning without an easy conclusion, but to kind of put it together again, whatever was confusing there, I hope you saw the clarity as long as you turned it to Jesus. Whenever it was about that day and the cross of Jesus Christ, it was very clearly talking about that. And everything else is for the sake of those people who return to the land with Zerubbabel and Joshua the high priest. We'll talk about that in the next sermon. Again, you can find that on YouTube later. All of it was for them to know that while Greece was going to oppress them and eventually Rome would come and oppress them, it would be for the sake of bringing this day to pass on which a spirit of grace and truth and peace would defeat the grave once and for all, pushing away the old covenant of the blood of bulls and goats and ushering in the new covenant of the very blood of the ever-living God, now given for you to eat and drink in remembrance of his name. In the name of Jesus, amen.